Conversations with Mother Earth, brought to you by Grounded Press. My name is Dana Petrovic, and each week my guests and I explore one aspect of Mother Earth and the gifts that she gives us. We also discuss why these gifts are so precious and why we should value them. We got you curious? Good. We love curiosity. Let's begin. Well, there's so much to tell. I always wonder, where do I start? I mean, I really um, love the title of it from chocolate with love because, or from cacao with love or cocoa with love. There's so many ways and uh, words for chocolate. But uh, for me, it is a story of love and it's a labor of love. Um, I've always loved chocolate. I don't know many people who don't. If they don't, they're not friends of mine. But, uh, and uh I, 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 you know, I grew up with chocolate and, and I never imagined that chocolate could be good for us or healthy or good for the planet. You know, I, it has such a negative connotation. So for me, it was really about my love of chocolate and discovering that chocolate is good for you and can be good for, for farmers and, um, for the environment. Um, so it really starts with love, you know, with, with a real love of, of chocolate and trying to, do things with love so that are beneficial for everyone. For me and my company, and, and this was the, the reason for, for starting Choc Chick, um, for me, it, it, everything goes hand in hand, sustainability, um, ethical sourcing, um, awareness, so awareness of your supply chain and responsibility, taking responsibility for your products and your actions and how you source sustainably, but um, it is a word that's now everybody saying, yes, we source e- sustainably. For me, ethics are paramount. So if you are an ethical company and you are aware of all the aspects of your supply chain, so you know where your products come from, you know who is impacted by your product, you know what is impacted, the, the environment that's impacted, um, and you take responsibility for it. So, you know, nothing is perfect. Sometimes there are things that might not be um, as sustainable as you would like them to be. At least you take action or you take responsibility for making change. Uh, and um, so I think it's 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 not just the word sustainability. There's a lot involved in in being a sustainable business. And and ultimately, uh, the business must be held accountable and responsible for yes. mm-hmm. for its practices and business practices, sourcing practices. Uh, on every level and that's a commitment that as well that businesses have to have that we have for me it's a commitment as well to sourcing ethically sourcing sustainably and um always having a connection and an awareness of my supply chain and and, and looking at a word like what are you trying to convey with you know like having like first understanding that words matter the meaning of words matter and that people use words, they can you can you can weaponize them. You can weaponize them and use them to hurt people if you if you structure it. And then you can also use them for healing and for growth. Yes. Right. So yeah. So you as a storyteller have a responsibility. Yes. 
with the words that you say, the words that you choose, whatever format, whether you, you know, you say them, you write them, you sing them, you know, like recognizing your responsibility. Yes. Um, and, you know, that you've been given and the privilege that you've been given to be able to, you know, impact other people with what you say. And that's the thing with, with oral tradition um, that things get messed or things don't get passed down depending on who's telling the story. Yes. And that the story changes. And, and I think that's, you know, like that's where, you know, the importance of even when now listening to any, any story is understanding that that story has been told through the lens of the storyteller. And that before you accept it as truth, you have to weigh it. Whose truth is it? Yes. <laughs> so I think our stories in a way may not, they, they don't, they, they kind of offer you this kernel of wisdom. Yeah. And then you're meant to take it. And then you're meant to sit with it. And then you're meant to think, okay, how does this inform my life? Or what do I want to do with this knowledge that's been passed on to me? Yeah. And that's what indigenous cultures have done for a long time. Yeah. I come, of course, from a nomadic culture. And nomadic culture uses oral tradition as a means of continuity, meaning that there are stories and myths that pass on for thousands of years. And they become a source of continuity. And they become a way to make it easier to move because nomads move all the time. We don't have a stable home, we pack up the yurt and we move to the next location. But there is a connection, there is a thread there that is combining the dance between the change and continuity. Curiosity uh, and chance, if you believe in chance. Curiosity because, as you said, uh, legend, myths, uh, all that is the traditional lore of uh, the people around the world has always fascinated me because while um, history has to be almost aseptic uh, and doesn't allow for uh, fantasy, for imagination. Legend, myths, uh, uh, and all this kind of, of stories uh, don't need to be uh, absolutely realistic or even follow the law of physics. So it's possible for a people to uh, put its real soul into the stories, its real belief, the cores that uh, that come from generations from when uh, we still believed uh, in animism and that all things had a soul or animals that we are intent uh, that we all are interconnected which is true by the way i spent some time in cameroon i was working on a kind of ape sanctuary there for orphaned chimps but what I was very fascinated by were the uh, the driver ants, the army ants that they have there, uh, and the people there have learned that they could they can steer a column of these ants into, for example, their compost heap, and the ants will eat the lot and just leave them with this very fine compost that has passed through their bodies. Interesting. You know, so as an example of working with, as opposed to just assuming that you have to destroy everything you don't like. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah, just very, um, just a, a very harmonious way of working. I have a great fondness for pollinators of all kinds. So very particularly in the UK, I love the bumblebees. Um, great furry buzzing creatures, you know. Uh, 
they were originally adapted to very cold climates, which is why they're so furry and why they can grow so big. Um, and they can learn to manipulate flowers, which are incredibly complicated structurally. Um, I've got a plant growing at the moment, which the little bees buzz pollinate, which is what they do also with tomatoes and potato flowers. Um, they can clasp the flower and they vibrate and that allows the pollen to fall out of the flower. So, yeah, just extraordinary animals and very valuable. We think about honeybees, which, of course, have got their place, but every country also has its own native bees that are much less noticed um, and go about their business. Uh, and also hoverflies, which are not so um, not so well regarded because they're flies. Uh, they do a tremendous amount of pollinating as well. So, so yeah, I do love me a pollinator. Because emotions are energy in motion in the body, what I need to do to be able to clear that out of my body is I need to move my body. Guess what? <laughs> my, my country, Japan, we're not supposed to express our feelings. So, you know, we have to uh, be polite or, you know, but were, we, we all are human beings. We have feelings, right? So, I, and when I started uh, learning flamenco, that, you know, we have to express our feelings. We have to, we need to understand you yourself inside you. Tango came as a kind of a natural lifesaver yeah, at the moment that I... I needed to put myself back out there. Let's put it in those words. I needed to to be to meet people. I needed to get out of some lonely situation. And uh, in my opinion, it was well. I'm not a bar guy. I'm not going to work, go to a bar and drink and, and meet people in a bar. And uh, the dance floor, actually, to meet people with some common idea, it makes sense. It made sense to me at the moment. And being Argentine tango was the, the natural choice, right? Um, so that was my first contact with tango. Tango is a very creative, as, as, as Flamenco, that Marico is saying, you are expressing what you feel in the moment, right? Yes. So you have full, full, full freedom to, to create something new together in this case. One of the easiest ways is to realize that if wind was, it takes a, like a little logic. So if wind was there at the beginning and wind is what stirs the imagination and the creativity of a planet, of a, a universal system being born, imagine what you could do to it if you started to give it a little bit of attention in your life. So when you breathe in, imagine breathing in that wisdom of the ages and let that wisdom filter through your entire being. And then as you breathe out, imagine that you can release, release that back to the universe and it's going to clear itself. Silence is the hardest part, <laughs> actually, because, you know, silence, but the nonstop, it, the time or the moment doesn't stop. Even though it's silence or you stop, but there's a something that's creating at the same time. The vibration. There is the vibration yes. in the air. Yes. So the, the, 
there's a very slow start of the music. Some of the, the flamenco music, really slow emotions. And some dancers just doesn't move, just listen to the music or whatever. But that moment is the hardest part, I think. Because it's not just standing and it's just not stand, you know, just listening to it, to it. but you, you're creating the atmosphere, that moment, even though you don't move. It's fascinating in, uh, in Croatia when Buddha hit, sometimes Buddha can go on for five days and it's, it's a really fearful uh, wind. What's fascinating is the silence that occurs. We, we, we literally feel the silence after the wind died out. We're not separate. There is no me. There is no you. There is no, we're all breathing the same wind. And, and that's just a, is the basic human uh, tenant that we need to understand is that the wind I breathe in is the wind you're going to breathe. When I breathe it out is the wind you're going to breathe in tomorrow. We can't hurt the planet without hurting ourselves. We can't hurting ourselves without hurting each other. And because we're all connected. And the war, this war took the love between each other away from us. And we no longer accept each other. Yeah. And this is, is an umbrella that we live under and love and, and peace and yes. security. So after 10 years of the war, we realized that country, home, it's nothing. Living it between each other is more value than all of this. These children need a future. How can we support these children? How can we support that they get an education? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first, like those children who live in tents, well, just think in life, we're not think in school. Because like every day there's bombing, running and Yesterday we have seen something like this and comes, they bomb comes in Hitler. So, uh, while the bombing is began, uh, like continue, those children will not sing and going to school. Uh, they will not be school because it will be dangerous. They will be taking risk if they want to go to school. So, uh, we have just to, to find peace. And the breath does that. The breath gives us this experience of being connected to this one energy in the universe that is in everything and in everyone. It surrounds you and it fills you. It surrounds the rocks and the moon and the stars. And so it's that one energy of existence. And that's who we are. We're a form of that. And, uh, but, and so we're bigger than our form. And breath gives people an actual experience that they, they transcend their body and mind. They're part of something bigger. When you start uh, digging deeper into ancient cultures uh, and this, you sooner or later you stumble upon tattoos because tattoos still embody some of the ancient uh, way of thinking, ancient uh, uh, roots of humanity. When you look back um, at your at your childhood, Yajita, and the time when you... Um, um, got your first stories. Were there any stories about nature or Mother Earth? Uh, how was uh, how was Mother Earth present in the cultural richness of Nigeria or Yoruba people? Yeah. yeah. So I think uh, when I think about that, I think about the Yoruba creation story. 
Um, and uh, it's funny, like different people have different creation stories. I, I was doing uh, some training on indigenous culture uh, in Canada, and it was interesting hearing different creation stories across the different tribes. Um, yeah, like we were like, oh. so the Yoruba creation story talks about. Um, so his name was Ududua. So Ududua, it's um, so the father. So that's more like the father of Yoruba people. And that um, how the earth was created was created with a chicken and some grains of sand. <laughs> and that the earth formed because the chicken was kind of, you know, kicking the, the grains of sand everywhere. And I was like, so, you know, like, it was just, I was like, you know, to, to be, you know, like, I'm like, like, you know, but that was how the earth was formed. It was by a chicken and some grains of sand. You know, the thing that really inspires me about rain um, is, is this thing called my, my meteorologist friends tell me that it's called scavenging. So it's when we have the rain comes through an area that might have a, quite, a, quite a high degree of air contamination. Um, and then it just it moves through and it catches these particles on its way through. And then even during the rain, you can just feel that the air has changed. And after the rain, you're, you're looking at a completely different landscape um, and moving out to that and just, and just breathing that air in um, after the, the scavenging um, has happened. For me, it's not even metaphorical. It's just a very tangible thing that inspires me every time. I, I really love it. New Zealand's economy depends so much on, on agriculture. Um, and although we've got a population of around 5 million people, I think at the last estimate, we were producing food for close to 40 million people. Um, so, you know, we really, really depend on, on rain for that agricultural uh, output, um, especially for things like you, you mentioned fruit. Um, we definitely need it for fruit. We need it for livestock, vegetables, um, grains. We need it for many, many, many different aspects of our agricultural economy, the agricultural part of our primary economy. Because the way to appreciate life in the soil is fast to describe what is a soil. Indeed, soil has five different components. And the most precious and the most interesting is what we've been told about, life in the soil. And indeed, if you remove it, and that is what we are doing now by destroying, by polluting, you do not have a soil, what it is supposed to be. It becomes just a material that we soil biologists describe as sand, which is very important, of course, to engineers. Life in the soil is very complex. And as you have heard, it is dark. It's compact. There's no highways. We can't move around. And therefore, it is not that easy to say exactly or to see these small organisms. The diversity is very big. In fact, life in the soil is bigger than what you see on the surface, what we call terrestrial world or the marine world where we are. But also there are the microscopic organisms, including what I'm, you will now understand because we are going through a very difficult time the whole globally, the viruses. They are also found in the soil. So I won't say anything about the number because there are millions and millions of organisms from viruses, bacteria, fungi, algae, 
what we describe as microscopic. We have also worms. And I think all, most of us, especially farmers, appreciate earthworms, ants, termites, which, all of which have a job and a task to do. And they are part of what makes the world beautiful. And we appreciate that beauty. Above the ground, we may not understand what goes on below the ground. And then from the scientific point of view, these organisms below the ground many a time have symbiotic relationship. I'll give an example. I am more interested in legumes because legumes have been given some things very special. They are nit nitrogen fixing or they are small microfactories that make nitrogen fertilizer in their roots. The way they do it is that they are in symbiotic or in a friendship with some bacteria that go into their roots. And through some mechanisms, they are able to fix nitrogen or get nitrogen from the atmosphere and transform it into nitrogen fertilizer. Held in their roots, when these plants die, they actually increase nitrogen and feed the accompanying crop, like the maize, the wheat, the barley, all these grasses that you grow. Mm -hmm. And you find that if you manage that system nicely, use the root, use the top, you don't have to add chemical fertilizer. In the same token, as you raise the fertility of the soil, you find now you encourage other organisms to increase in the soil. A legume, a, 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 a grass or maize plant is very heavy on roots may actually be having very beautiful symbiotic relationship with a fungi. That fungi will help it acquire more phosphorus from the soil. So you can see the complementality of the crops below the ground comes up on the surface as well. And it's a symbiotic relationship between, between uh, fungi living in the soil and the trees, more precise than roots. Mm, to, to simplify this, the filaments, of, of the of the fungi just plug into the roots of the trees and create the gigantic network branched dense network in the forest underground and the benefits are mutual the fungi who cannot photos photosynthesize uh, just takes some of the uh, sugars that trees do produce and in exchange Mm, this this cooperation enables um, trees to better get water and more more important mineral nutrients from the soil via those those filaments. And we know this from from a very long time. But uh, relatively new thing is the that one the, the fungi the, the, there's not such a thing like underground like a single fungus. It's always a gigantic network joined together. We cannot say when one fungus starts and the other, they're just one big net. And since the trees in the forest and other plants, but mostly trees, are plugged into it, they do have physical and chemical communication with each other. And now we really start to think what it means. Because trees communicate in very different way that animals do, I don't mean like mechanically different, but the whole idea is different. Because we've got um, 
we've got nervous system. We communicate. We're not even thinking about the way we communicate with different parts of our body. I want to move a hand, I just do it. That's, that's my neurons that, that take care of it. But trees do not have um, neural cells or nervous system. So it's a pretty different thing to communicate with one from one part of the tree to another. And do, they do this with the phytohormones. They've got hormones just like we do. Uh, with the flow, not with the blood, but with the sap or, or just the, on, on the fluids. And some of them are released like gases, for example, ethylene, that, that just travels in there. It's a hormone that um, causes uh, fruit ripening. And we use it also. It's some, some mixes of gases called banana mix. And when we transport by sea the green uh, bananas, then we close them in the great containers and add some ethylene or make them ribbon. So the same chemicals that the trees use to communicate with themselves uh, are traveled through um, through this network of fungus filaments and come with contact with other trees. And we, at this point, really cannot say if this is a byproduct of communicating with itself, or do they really benefit from it? Why I find trees so fascinating and important is mainly because they create their own environment. It's something like most of organisms live within an environment, but trees do create forests. That, that's an incredible thing, and I cannot think about trees without thinking about forests. The, it's microclimate, it's importance uh, for like preventing soil erosion and, and um, mitigating like fluids and droughts, uh, water storage, and uh, most importantly, home for so many species of animals and other plants. Um, forests are the most abundant, most diverse, most rich environments on our planet. And the uh, tropical rainforests got the um, highest number of, of uh, different species living in them. Mm-hmm. So the trees are not just a part of ecosystem, they're a creator of ecosystem. That's the most. Well, nature is the original reinventor. If you think about the ebb and flow of life, everything in nature is reinvented again and again, every molecule. We don't accept it relatively lately. So this is a recent development. And it's also that we are not born resistant to change. When babies are born, I have a 17-year-old, so I still remember very clearly when she was a newborn or a one-year-old, she didn't need any motivation to start something new. She didn't need a bonus to reinvent. She didn't need to be motivated to start walking. Reinvention is a birthright. It's something we are born with. And the art of reinvention that is successful is to take managing continuity as seriously as we take managing change. All of these changes, if there's no change, then you and me are not sitting here thousands of miles apart yeah. talking to the screen. It happens because somebody decided to break the rules. You know, when you break the rules, then something else will happen. 
and something else will take shape you know i i am nobody like i cannot set anything free okay they my work is setting me free oh that's interesting and that's the other way around yeah my work is setting me free so it's so interesting that it needs your so every sculpture every work needs your fully attention you know like a new relationship yeah, you have to engage fully you know with your new relationship if you take 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 for granted even for a minute then the moment is gone you need a passion yes to do this and patience yeah. passion yeah passion passion and really focus you can be you know if if you wrong and it's going to be spot the brush is i would say the single most important instrument tool for for this art it's a very sensitive instrument and the mastery of the brush will require high level on the part of the calligrapher uh, mental concentration physical balance and uh, muscular control it is it is like a seismograph of the of of the calligrapher's mind answering every pressure every turn of the of the wrist the, the paper used for chance calligraphy creation has a absorbent quality that is the slightest drop of ink the lightest touch of the brush register at once on the paper yeah no mistakes allowed no mistakes allowed this is a medium that tolerates no error we use the paper weight that is to make the the paper flat yeah suitable for calligraphic practice or calligraphic pr uh, creation and, uh, and we use prepared ink what I put down on the this piece of paper are eight characters you you could say it's a cool plate uh, basically it means uh, the cool winds and bright moon those who are at nature can attain them and um, and for chance calligraphic practice and creation uh, normally the practitioners and calligraphers often choose poetic text for the creation i think that is readily sensible to 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 chinese uh, scholars and also for the westerners yeah but the appreciation of this art the appreciation of chance calligraphy does not necessarily require that everyone should be able to read chinese by which I mean, as we have discussed in this episode, uh, we have, there are three aspects of the three formal aspects of this of this art. So, for a Westerner, for a foreigner who does not know Chinese language, who cannot recognize Chinese characters, we can start with the formal aspects. And uh, first and foremost, we can start with with the brush strokes. As we said, we can understand Chinese calligraphic work as a compilation of progressive calligraphic lines. Every character is composed of several 
correct uh, several strokes. And you can follow the progression of the strokes in a piece of work from the first to the last. Now, when you appreciate Chinese calligraphic work, you start from the top right. And that's, that's where the calligrapher started his piece of uh, his calligraphic creation. And you read from the top to the bottom, from right to the left. So in this sense, you can understand Chinese calligraphy as an abstract art. And you try to imagine in your mind the bodily movement of the calligrapher of the artist. The issue um, of the relationship between Chinese calligraphy and uh, the external world is actually widely discussed by a lot of theorists. And this is actually quite important issue in Chinese aesthetics, that is the relationship between uh, Chinese art and uh, the nature. And it's actually a common saying in Chinese art criticism that as calligraphy should imitate the shapes and forms of the natural world. And during the Tang and Song, poetry matured firstly uh, in terms of the institutionalization. Uh, that's because in early Tang, poetry that, that was uh, around 7th century, uh, mid-7th century, uh, poetry writing actually came to take, play a part in the civil examination uh, for selecting the court officials. And as the role of poetry gradually gains the significance in the civil examination, it also rapidly matures in both content and in form. And then, uh, well, with the help of that, poetry becomes firmly ingrained in the general intellectual life. Uh, literature is very fascinating for lots of reasons, for lots of reasons. And uh, I can just say that literature is a window to different, or it's the window to understanding different human facets, be it on the local level or on the universal level. So poetry is a, a kind of a necessity, of a necessity. I deem it a kind of a necessity, and uh, it's uh, not uh, a luxury, but it matters in many ways, especially in our world, uh, in our world torn by wars, torn by barbarism, and torn by, I can call it, hatred, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, poetry, it bridges these gaps between cultures, and it's, uh, let's say, um, make possible cultural encounters. What does the concept of home mean to us humans? Uh, yeah, that's... that's... It, it, that's a deep one, I think. I, I mean, it's much more than just food and shelter. Um, yes. I, I think, in short, you can say home is where, where the heart is. Yeah, home is where you feel at home. And um, yeah, although it doesn't really uh, add uh, in meaning in, in, in saying it in words, we all have a sense of what home is. And uh, yeah, it, it's a very personal thing in the end. I, I was really thinking about it when you sent me the, the, the question before, and I'm still pondering about it because it can be very physical, like like having beautiful room arrangements, having pleasant daylight filtering in your home, familiar smells, but it can be also completely in, independent of the physical and, and depend completely on the people you're with. And when I was thinking about this, I imagined 
I mean, we have a very, very nice home. Uh, I live together with my wife and my two daughters. Uh, but would it still be a nice home when they wouldn't be there, right? I was also imagining this. So it, it's really and, 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 because, well, it's really nice that we are there. We are safe. We have a place where we can uh, put our belongings and, and we can recognize our, our memories in, in certain artifacts that we collected. Um, so it's really the combination of all. Um, it made me also realize and reminded me that uh, in order to make a home for somebody else, you really have to um, imagine uh, standing in someone's shoes and, and, and understanding what makes somebody tick, right? And also for the handwriting batik, we call handmade or handwriting batik, the pure one, it's a unique, it's only one piece. It's not going to be the same because the artist also doing it and the worker doing it a different way, the, 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 the intricate. And um, it's not only one piece in Indonesia, but and one piece in the whole world. Sri Lanka has over 2,500 years history of gemstone mining. They, oh, that's long. And the vast majority of it is small scale. We're talking vertical pits yes. that are like two by four meters. They go down usually five to 25 meters. And then they dig these horizontal tunnels and they scoop up the gem gravel. The whole island, the, the at least the, the lower half of the island, has these secondary gemstone deposits. They bring it up to the surface. They wash the gravels. And they continue to find sapphire and other stones for over 2,500 years. Some form by what we call generally metamorphic processes, which means change. If you have the formation of mountain ranges, you might say, that's creating the heat and the pressure to change rocks and to change the elements available that form different gemstones. So you have the elements available and you have the right heat and pressure. This is often true with ruby and sapphire. These metamorphic processes help to create ruby and sapphire. You can also have Taking ruby and sapphire, for instance, gemstones related to volcanic activity, basalt, a volcanic rock. The ruby and sapphire most likely does not form in the basalt, but it's brought to the surface by the volcanic reaction. You find these stones in Thailand, Nigeria, other sources where the ruby and sapphire are found related to basaltic rock. Whereas your metamorphic, your change processes is more related, let's say, to Myanmar or to East Africa. And what prompted you to make the powerful speech, One Dead Sea is Enough? I thought that we really, really need uh, to put out a strong message to the world as a permanent reminder of this horrible, horrible problem. So we are sending a message from the Dead Sea, from the lowest point on earth, to the living people. And the message is written out there on a, uh, a floater made from uh, plastic waste. And it says, one Dead Sea is enough. I think this is a clear message to all. Thank you. Thank you very much. For me, you know, when you, I mean, I grew up in Pakistan and I grew up in a family which 
the family who's uh, who's sort of you know, who are not interested interested in uh, acquiring stuff so the family i grew up in with the, with the parents and the siblings who are interested in living life instead of a living a you know prosperous life so the idea was so you know when you grew up in a with the limited resources then 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 the focus of the whole family is not to discard anything so so you know so one has to look on the reuse of everything like you know for instance when we were you know as a kid when we were playing uh, when we were using uh, reading newspaper so instead of throwing the newspaper out or giving it to you know we just will make something out of it so we will make a book cover out of it a, a book covering or 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 a small envelopes or you know something out of it and then then the old clothes and you know whatever is around you so you know so i for me i grew up with that, that idea like for me the idea was like throwing anything out of your house was it, it seems like a disgrace to to stop yeah. you know so because, because one has to value everything i'm coming from africa where the in the 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 farming practices before the 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 the, the, the commercialization farming came in uh was mixed farming mm-hmm. and in any typical african farm you go you you seldom find one crop in a plot of land many a time you find four five six different types of crops of course as you have mentioned they bring about an assurance of food security Mm-hmm. because these crops they are different they grow at different times they bring diversity on the food, on the plate so you find the farmer will have a starch a protein a vegetable and they are picked from the farm because we are we are coming from a background of non commercialized farms then we came out and we brought out the commercialization of our farming systems the african farmer is a mixed farmer in terms of the crops the farms in one piece of land you find diverse diversification in terms of there are many crops and these crops the way they are grown one they mature at different stages you find that on that farm is a complete plate it has a starch it has a, a, a vegetable it may have a legume which is a protein source you'll be surprised there is also fruit at many a time so it is an assurance of food security a balanced diet and it could also be a commercial setup within the same uh kirato cafe is um it's a collective uh we buy directly from uh cooperatives that are also democratically structured with whom we maintain long-term relationships and the focus is on uh, yes long-term relationships uh getting the organic uh coffee from the uh, fixed teams that are also working in democratic manner they're all cooperatives that i work with and they have a central uh, cocoa collection center so the farmers uh, there can be 100 farmers in a cooperative there can be 400 500 farmers and they they'll take the cocoa pulp so the cocoa pods are cut in half and inside is a white 
uh, mushy pulp, which is delicious. It actually tastes like lychee or lychee. I don't know. Um, it's yeah, lychee. It's very sweet, um, but it ferments. It starts fermenting very quickly. So um, that is the pulp is removed, and that's taken in trucks, sometimes on horses, you know, to the cocoa collection centers. And it's a very communal thing. So the families will, you know, cut the husks together, take everything together, and the cooperatives themselves will collect everything on trucks or, you know, they'll, they'll work together to take each yield to the collection centers where there it's qualified, um, weighed, um, if it's a single origin, if it's a hybrid, uh, the farmers are paid fairly. Um, and we have access to a Google spreadsheet so we can see which lot came from which farmer and how much they were paid. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful work also. Uh, the only problem yes. is that it's difficult to uh, make a living income with it because prices, generally speaking, are not uh, many times uh, below production costs. So to produce coffee, of course, you need to pre-finance as a producer. And this is one also one of the things that Kirotika is doing because in order to pay the workers, to get the infrastructure ready, and everything the producer is confronted with costs. And Kirote Cafe is pre-financing 60% of each harvest to ensure, because in the in the cold country, so to speak, we have very reasonable access uh, to credits also. Yes. Generally speaking, we're in the, the tropical country, a credit is very expensive, often 20, 30%. So pre-financing is also crucial to have this, to share this burden of the risk. I think you said in your intro around, um, about women receiving 3% of venture capital funding. And that is, um, actually on the optimistic side. Wow. I think, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that we were from memory, I think 2012, we were at 3%. So that's 10 years ago. And then roll the clock forward. I think it was nine years. So um, 2019, sorry, 2019. So seven years on, um, we were still at 3%. So then the dial wasn't moving. Then COVID hit. And as we all know, women took more, you know, took the brunt of the, the job losses, um, took the brunt of the homeschooling, um, you know, the, the, compromises that had to be made within a family. And, and so that number went back to around 2.3% at um, early on in during the COVID pandemic. Now, I think we've clawed a little bit back, but we're talking a, you know, a 0.23%. So we potentially are around 2.8% if we're feeling optimistic and it's a nice sunny Friday day here in Singapore. So let's say it's 2.8%. So that's the optimistic number. Um, I don't think it sounds very good. Um, that's a global number. I think there's also, you know, we have to look at women ourselves as well. We're, you know, quite often opting out ourselves. Um, and because of situations, particularly in the finance sector, which is where I work largely, you know, that's mostly men in there. And I can understand why women do self, you know, opt out because if you graduate, I think you mentioned in your intro about, um, 
more than 50% of business graduates are, are women. Uh, if you draw that down into finance or economics, tech, graduates, I mean, that, those numbers are getting smaller. And then when they've graduated, if they then look, you know, okay, I'm going to become an investment banker. Let me just go and have a look at all these investment banks. Oh, a whole sea of men in dark suits. And again, and again, and again, it isn't appealing. It just isn't. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want a job like that. Um, I would be thinking about, oh, how am I going to balance all of my other things, my life. I, I like a life as well, not just that I'm a mom, but I'm Tanya. Um, I want to have a social life. And and how do we, how do I balance all of that, those things? And I think that that's the root of the problem is that we're just, we just haven't evolved in how we're working and how we're thinking about work and specifically for women. And then one day I wasn't so lucky anymore. I crashed into four parked cars and all cars were completely destroyed, including my own. And I won't forget the policeman who came to the scene and he was like, oh my God, he's still alive. And you know, this idea that I was supposed to be dead, that's, that stuck with me. And um, it, it took me on this intense search for meaning. I asked myself a lot of questions, you know, who would have come to my funeral? Was it all worth it? What is life all about? And I only had a lot of depressing answers. And so I started reading this wonderful book, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is all about that question of how do we find meaning in crisis and meaning in, in tough situations. And what I realized is that what I enjoy doing the most is connecting ideas, connecting people. And so I started out as a community builder. We set up a community called Sandbox Network that uh, brings together young innovators around the world and helps them make ideas happen. And then I went more towards working with CEOs on, you know, purpose-driven companies. And at some point, uh, the inner imposter came out and said, look, Christian, you're, you know, trying to make all these things happen, but essentially we're just, you know, building the plane while we're flying it. What do we actually know? We're claiming all this impact we're having, but what do we know? And so I went a bit more into academia saying, what are the patterns behind success and failure? What makes some people more successful and, and joyful than others? And what I found fascinating is that both in that kind of journey as entrepreneur and social entrepreneur and in my research, what popped up everywhere was serendipity. You know, the most successful purpose-driven people, they seem to have in common that they cultivate serendipity. They, they constantly see something in the unexpected and turn that into positive outcomes. And so I got really fascinated by that question is there a science-based framework for that? Can we develop a science-based framework for how we can create more serendipity, more unexpected good luck in our lives? And so that's really what the book is about. And that's what a lot of my work is about to say, how can we develop that, that framework, but also what are exercises we can use in the day-to-day -to, -day to create more luck for ourselves and for the people we love? As a social animal, I truly love these conversations. However, I also believe that an introspective conversation with our souls is equally vital. I have learned that we must listen to our inner voice, which can only happen through having deep conversations with self. You know, I think uh, it, it's always had a special place in societies and ancient societies and now because it, it um, has so many... Um, nutritional benefits and also um, emotional benefits to it. You know, cacao is, um, is it tryptophan? It's very high in many chemicals and um, has over 300 nutritional properties. So magnesium, iron, um, potassium. It has a lot of nutrition uh, uh, minerals as well as uh, vitamins. Um, 
But it's known to increase the serotonin levels in our brain. It makes us happy. It's considered the love. Uh, you know, it's, it's a symbol of love, but it also makes us feel uh, amorous. Yeah, because don't we often get into stuck states? And I think it's so fascinating when I watch that process with myself, right? And, and you know, that whole thing of going into the stuck state, you kind of get down a rabbit hole and then you're going, 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 going. And no, this has to work, right? And then you're, Oof, and then you notice, <clears throat> okay, <laughs> here we go again. Let's get out of this hole. <laughs> How did we get last time? What works? And I'm so glad we're talking about self-love because that really is a way out of the stuck state. Gratitude is the portal. Gratitude for having a body. Gratitude for being able to take that next breath. Gratitude for that, that water that comes out of the tap, hopefully in your country. The, the food on your table, the friends that you have, the roof over your head. Da -dum, da -dum, da -dum. And in no time, you've switched from a stuck state into a state where you yes. can start creating what you want. Let's find that joy for life again, because you see joy and happiness are two different things. Um, yes. Happiness is something that we usually ascribe to something on the outside happening so we can feel happy. Oh, yeah, I'm going to feel happy when I have that job, that man, that whatever, that house. <laughs> it's something that's out there. But joy is, is something different. Joy is that what we were just talking about. It's a mixture out of gratitude and passion for life. And sometimes it's just that little spark that's inside of you, even in the darkest moments that's there saying, come on, you got this, it's worth it, right? It's that that keeps you breathing. And this planet needs more joyful people.